Good evening. If we turn your Bible to Genesis 1, we'll be starting in verse 14. Thank you, Adam, musicians, praise team for leading us so well and faithfully, preparing us for worship in the Word. And I'm grateful to be in a church that's not affected by the weather. Um, basically, you have to go to Africa to, to see churches not affected by the weather, except Lakeview. And I remember that from 20 years ago. Uh, we would have just horrible weather, and I would think, oh, attendance is going to be down uh, this week. And sure enough, you showed up. And I'm very grateful for you for that. Well, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless our evening. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have a king to celebrate, to sing about. Uh, a king who has subdued us to himself, who restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies and rules over us and defends us. A king who also is a priest who offered up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to you, a holy God, and who makes continual intercession for us. And we know that he's interceding for us even now in this worship moment. And we thank you for the comfort of that. We ask that he would be honored tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So when the U.S. Continental Congress um, gathered on July the 4th, 1776, they affirmed that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And when they did that, even though most of these men were not what we would call evangelicals, they were consciously drawing from the truths of Genesis chapter 1. And they were repurposing it for uh, that political setting and for that moment in time. Ironically, Thomas Jefferson, who was no friend to orthodoxy, just consult the Jeffersonian Bible sometime. He took out all the miracles. But he did say this. He described that statement as a sacred truth. And this was also... Uh, true of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was ratified by the United Nations in Paris in December of 1948. Its opening lines insist upon the inherent dignity and equal in, inalienable rights of all members of the human family. And all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Of course, secularists today, they may loathe uh, that idea that such statements were beholden to a Judeo-Christian worldview, and in particular, the doctrine of creation by divine fiat. But tough, they are. Uh, but when Genesis 1 is disbelieved, as it is in the main today, not because they have discovered evidence against it. It goes against their, their notion of freedom, which essentially is birthed by depravity. When Genesis 1 is disbelieved or even disregarded, the dignity of humanity will be disregarded. And something in the creation will be worshipped. That's always the fruit of 
disregarding or disbelieving Genesis 1. It wreaks havoc on creation. I mean, consider the following letter from June 17th, 1 BC, in the Roman world, where Genesis 1 wasn't even considered. There was a Roman soldier named Hilarion, and he was stationed in a port city in Egypt, Alexandria, and he writes a letter home to his wife named Elise, and he promises to send her uh, his check. Uh, It's just a normal letter. And he, and he asks about their kids, and he reassure, reassures her that he can't wait to see her and that, that he's missing her. Good so far, correct? But in passing, Hilarion tells his wife that if she happens to be pregnant, above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it's female, cast it out. Now, what's tragic about this letter is it's just a throwaway line in an otherwise normal letter, which tells us that must have been a normal statement. Indeed, it was a normal statement. In a a world ignorant of Genesis 1, this was neither shocking nor was it illegal or even considered immoral. Disposing of newborns was seen as a method of family planning. That was the way it was. Throughout the Greek and the Roman world, excess children were often discarded. It wasn't illegal. The child was simply left outside, uh, whether on a street corner for for, uh, traffickers or put in a a garbage dump or whatever other ways, killed by animals. But Jews and Christians with a worldview rooted in Genesis 1, they spoke out against this. Many of them were were severely persecuted for that. They even gathered abandoned infants, and they cared for uh, for these infants. Hundreds of thousands of people, historians tell us, are alive today who are descendants of those rescued as a practice that was motivated by Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is so vital for us to the point that Rome banned the killing of infants in A.D. 374. They banned it because of the Judeo-Christian worldview that was largely rooted in Genesis chapter 1. The inherent royal status of every human being is the real foundation of justice. Since it understands that every human, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the gender, and there are two genders, and we don't choose our gender, God chooses our gender, are the age from embryo to the most elderly by virtue of creation, by virtue of the fact that we are the image of God, we have certain inherent rights. But when this is dismissed, look out. And we're seeing it in our culture. Uh, That's why in America today, we're, we're no more morally advanced than the first century genociders. Now, next Sunday, I'm not going to be here. It is 
Sanctity of Life Sunday. I'll be out of town. So I want you to hear this stat that should sober us all. According to the World Health Organization, every year in the world, there are estimated 40 to 50 million abortions every year. There have been over 1 million abortions this year. And it is January the 9th. Over 1 million abortions. Over 110,000 abortions per day worldwide. You see what happens when Genesis 1 is disbelieved or disregarded. Eight Holocaust. If there were 6 million Jews killed in the Holocaust, eight Holocaust in one year. More than one victim per second in the world. In 2019, 887,000 abortions took place in the U.S. alone. 887,000 abortions. Uh, In 2019, approximately 19%, almost one out of five pregnancies ended in abortion. In New York City, get this, more African-American image bearers are aborted than born. Every year, more are aborted than born. In Asia, widespread sex-selective abortions have led to 160 million missing women. 160 million. And they have a real crisis over there. There's not enough women for the men. Oh, how we need to get back to the doctrine of creation, to Genesis 1. Or we will continue to either devalue that which has worth and dignity, image bearers, or perhaps worship things that are only creaturely. Now, we have seen so far uh, in Genesis 1 that God dealt with the formless and form matter that he, he spoke out of nothing by forming, by differentiating, by distinguishing and dividing in the first three days. So we've looked at the first three days of creation. I believe that Moses intends us to read this straightforwardly, that these were uh, three literal 24-hour days. And so day one, he creates the material to, to shape his universe into its final form. Uh, Day two, he creates the the expanse of heaven between the waters above and the waters below. Day three, he separates the dry land from the water, which he gathers into the seas, and then he creates the trees and the plants. And now, in days four to six, he's going to feel what he's already formed. It's 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 beautiful creativity by our God. And that brings us to the fourth day, starting in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let there, let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
And so the events of day four correspond and complement the day one, okay? So he's filling the day um, and night with finished forms of light. Now, remember, all of this is spoken or it, it happens when God says it happens. God's word is the means. Uh, there's, there's no process. Uh, there's no time involved of like billions of years. Uh, God doesn't need billions of years to do what he does. He speaks the word and it is so. It's not a process. God has already completed it. Now, the various lights, so you think about the, the sun and the moon. Of course, the moon just reflects the light of the sun. But the stars, uh, th they were worshipped in the ancient Near East. They were worshipped as gods in the cultures that, that surrounded Israel. All right? So one example, the Egyptian hymns praised the sun god, uh, Amon-Re. And they refer to him uh, as you who create the years Join months together, days, night, and hours occur according to your footsteps. So this is a hymn sung to the sun. Not the S-O-N, but the S-U-N. And, and tragically, uh, later on, again, let me just be my, uh, remind us of this. If we are not being renewed day by day by the word of God, we will be conformed to the culture around us um, that that's just a given and so by the time you get to Ezekiel chapter 8 listen to this Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 16 at the entrance of the temple of the Lord were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east worshiping the sun towards the east so by the time you get to uh, 700 BC you have sun worshipers in Israel because they were not renewing their minds in the word of God. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? The Lord is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here? But here in Genesis 1, uh, a, a, a book, a chapter that these very Jews would have had in Genesis chapter 1, the sun, the moon, and the stars are mere servants. They are created servants that fulfill essentially three roles. Notice in verse 14, to separate the day from the night, to serve as signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years, so they could, for, for instance, celebrate their festivals, and so that they would be lights in the expanse to give light upon the earth. They're just servants. In fact, the usual terms sun and moon are not even used here. Isn't that interesting? Look with me in verse 16. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day. We know that's the sun. Doesn't mention it though. You think that's intentional? Absolutely it's intentional. And the lesser light to rule the night. And then with a throw in and the stars. So he, he avoids using their names because they were worshipped in Egypt. 
And Moses is taking that on. He's taking on any possibility of idolatry. Again, notice the throwaway line. Uh, also, he made the stars. I, I really believe, given uh, the, just the, you see it often, even today, uh, how common the worship of the stars is. If man had written this without divine inspiration, there would have been at least one chapter in the Bible on, on stars. And for Moses, it's just a throwaway line. Oh, also, he made the stars. Uh, Sir James Jeans was a 20th century British physicist and astronomer. And he made the point, he made the argument that there are more stars in in space than there are grains of sand on all the seashores of the world. That's remarkable. More stars in, in space than there are grains of sand on the seashores of the world. And yet Moses says he made the stars. This is a clear repudiation of astrology. I know that there are people, I've heard about it this week, not at Lakeview. <laughs> There are people in Auburn who engage in astrology. It is absolutely remarkable, which is basically forecasting on the basis of celestial phenomena. God made the stars. And in fact, Israel imposed severe penalties, at least they were supposed to, upon anyone who worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 to 5. I want you to consider as well here how Moses knew that the the sun was bigger than the moon. Notice he says, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. But ordinary observation would tell us the moon is bigger than the sun. I mean, if you're just looking empirically, have you ever seen the moon on a, a, a giant harvest moon? A giant harvest moon looks bigger empirically to us than the sun. And yet here, Moses calls the sun the greater light that rules the day. Uh, we've never seen the sun look as large as the harvest moon. Uh, but he could have made another mistake as well, if you think about this. He's, he said that God appointed the greatest light, he could have said, he appointed the greatest light to rule the day. Uh, many, many people worship the sun as the greatest object in the heavens. But he doesn't say the greatest light. He says the greater light, the greater and the lesser light. What's the point here? Well, there is a greater light than the sun. It's the star Antares, which is, get this, it could swallow up 64 million suns. 64 million suns could fit inside this star. And so we see that Moses' account here does not conflict with, with science, science that they would not have known in that day. Well, notice in verse 17, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. All that God created was good. And there was evening and there was morning 
the fourth day. By the way, it is the rotation of the earth on its axis that determines a 24-hour day, right? Well, it's the rotation of the moon's orbit around the earth that determines a month, and it's the earth's rotation around the sun that determines a year. What determines a week? Well, there's nothing, there's nothing in the celestial bodies that determines a week, and yet universally, mankind has lived by weeks. Where did they get that from? Got it from Genesis 1. Now, the fifth day's events complement those of day two. So day four corresponds to day one. Day five uh, corresponds to day two. He's filling the heavenly domains uh, with what he's already created. Notice in verse 20. And God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. That's a very important phrase in Genesis 1. According to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so on day three, God brought... Uh, plant life into existence. On day four, God created and, and set the, 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 the luminaries in the sky. And now he is producing living creatures. And he, Moses here only writes about the fish and the birds, except for one exception. Did you catch that? It's these living uh, sea creatures. Um, the word there is tannin, T-A-N-N-I-N in English. Now, why is that important? Again, he's taking on false worship. In the mythologies of the ancient Near East, there were a variety of, of terrible uh, creatures that inhabited the sea, and they were often associated with threatening forces that could wreak chaos and havoc. But Moses uses the word bara, God bara. He created out of nothing these sea creatures which means he has authority over them there's nothing to fear God is in control but know for the first time in our Bible we see the word blessing that's a word that we all love blessing Um, we are hardwired for blessing and so when we see the word blessing uh, there is this this warmness that 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 fills our hearts. This is the first time we see the word blessing, and it's on the fifth day of creation. Notice verse 22. And God blessed them. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And so this is the first recorded blessing in the Bible. But what we're seeing here is there is an ascending order uh, uh, of nobility to creation. Things are becoming more and more noble. I want you to think about this. I'll give you a fancy, couple of fancy terms, but I think it's helpful to know. There's God's intrinsic glory. God's intrinsic glory is the glory that he has in himself. It is perfect. It is not, it's never changing. We have never seen his intrinsic glory. Uh, We will one day, 
when we stand before him, but we've never seen his intrinsic glory. It's perfect, it's immutable, but God has extrinsic glory. And, and everything we see in, in, in the creation uh, glorifies God in some way. It, it reflects God's glory, but there are lesser to greater all right, reflections of God's glory. That's what we're seeing in Genesis 1. Everything created is, is glorious, but there are some things that are more glorious than others. And we're seeing this, we're ascending to the highest glory, which we recognize is the, the image of God. And so that's why we're seeing uh, this language of, of blessing. And notice verse 23, there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And so the fifth day concerns the filling of the, the waters and the skies, and it parallels day two of creation. And again, uh, we see this ascension in order. Notice now in day six, we get to the apex of creation. Verse 24 begins that day six, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Again, that phrase, according to their kinds, is so vital. That in itself dismisses uh, the theory of evolution, macroevolution. Everything is created according, there are no transitional life forms. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and saw, and God saw that it was good. And so he's, he's caused the, uh, created the dry ground and he's created vegetation. And now on the day six, which corresponds to day three, he fills out that land with living land creatures. Now, there are two parts to his creation, though, on day six. First, he creates the animal kingdom. All right? So animals are important. And there are, there's a threefold classification uh, as you see here in the animal kingdom, uh, you have uh, birds and livestock and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, I want you to think about this a moment. I had to look this up. Scientists have classified millions of different species of animals, including, get this, 10 million different species of insects. 10 million. That's incredible. I think 9.5 million of those are in Enterprise, South Alabama. <laughs> Not as many here for some reason. You don't have fleas or uh, mosquitoes. You, I guess you do have mosquitoes, yeah. Uh, 2,500 kinds of ants. 30,000 kinds of fish. 9,000 kinds of birds. That's just the ones we've identified. 6,000 kinds of reptiles and 3,000 kinds of amphibians, 5,000 kinds of mammals. Isn't that remarkable? That is divine glory. It reflects the glory of God. No way that happened by accident. Uh, no way did that happen by random uh, evolution. But I want you to note here, importantly, 
up to this point, humanity is not part of the animal world. I remember when Ella was born, I, when she was about two years old, I bought this beautiful, big uh, book on animals. It had just about every animal you could think of and pictures of the animals. And we get to the H, as I'm showing her these pictures, and we get to the H, and it said human. And in that book, a human was not distinct from any other animal, uh, <laughs> according to the author of that book. According to Moses, the author, they, humans, are distinct. So at this point, man's house is built. Humankind's house is built. It's now ready for the image of God to occupy his and her house. And it's here that the narrative is going to slow down. It, kind of like a helicopter. We've been flying a plane, and now we're hovering like a helicopter. And this is the second part of God's creative activity on day six. Notice in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, it's binary. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the ground, uh, crown of God's handiwork is humanity. And we're going to come back to this next time. And we're going to spend more time on this passage. So don't think I'm just glossing over it. It, it deserves its own time. And so we're going to do that in, in two Sunday nights. But I do want to close here by just speaking a moment on how uh, this text clearly designates humankind as the apex of creation. Again, we are the greatest display of God's glory, his extrinsic glory. First of all, the creation account, as we've already seen, shows an ascending order of significance. And so as we make our way through creation, things get more and more glorious. God's creation gets more and more glorious. Secondly, of the creative acts, there's only one that's preceded by this divine deliberation. Notice what it says. Let us make man in our image. You don't see that about any other aspect of creation. And so this shows us that, that humanity emerged from the depths of God's heart. And that gives us value and worth. Every human has the same value and worth regardless of your talents, regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your place in society. All of us have the same dignity and worth because all of us are equally the image of God. Third, this event is giving longer description. 
than the rest of the created order. Fourth, humanity alone is created as the image of God. Nothing else. The angels aren't even the image of God. In fact, the Hebrew word for image occurs 16 times in the Old Testament. Now, originally the word meant something cut from an object. So in a sense, we are cut from an object. What is that object? God himself. Uh, Most of its occurrences refer to idols that physically represent a God. Okay, a false God. Now, again, Moses is not borrowing from pagan religion. He's taking it on. In fact, in Egypt, it was the pharaohs who were considered the image of God. And Moses says, no, all of humanity, all of humanity is equally the image of God, which means, Pharaoh, you are no more important than the people that you rule. So the image of God is is vital uh, here and we see that all of humanity are created with kingly dignity. Uh, finally, the word bara here, notice in verse 27, occurs uh, three times. Again, that word bara is the word create out of nothing. Create out of nothing. Notice in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he bara, he created him, male and female, he bara, he created them. Now what's remarkable here is that our text describes the result of God's creative acts by both a plural and a singular pronoun. Look at me in verse 27. He says, um, verse 26 rather, God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? Well, you say, well, it's the angels. No, the angels aren't the image of God. Can't be the angels. Uh, The angels were created themselves. They don't create. So there is a plurality here in this God. Let us make, and it's not the last time we'll see this. Uh, We're going to see it in Genesis 11, for instance, when they create the the Tower of Babel. Let us go down, (laughs) it says. We see it in Isaiah 6. Who will go for us when God commissions Isaiah? There is plurality here in the Godhead. And yet, notice it's also singular. Let us make man in our image. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. There's one God. And yet there is plurality in the Godhead. Now, Moses couldn't have passed a test on Trinitarian theology. But what we're saying here is that God did not become Trinity in Matthew chapter 1. Genesis 1 is, B.B. Warfield said, like a dimly lighted but richly furnished chamber. He is triune all along for all eternity. And as the Word of God brings light on these texts, we begin to see, wow, God is one, but God has a plurality in the Godhead, which means God did not create us because he was lonely. There was perfect uh, fellowship and communion in the Godhead from all eternity. Uh, So we'll pick up here next time, but suffice to say, there's no 
more important text that dispels so many issues of our day than Genesis chapter 1. Racism, sexism, classism, abortion, transgenderism, euthanasia, fill in the blank. There's no text that better informs these discussions than Genesis 1. Of course, these are issues because God's image bearers went AWOL. He commissioned us to take dominion as his vice kings. But instead of doing that, we went AWOL and we used our resources and the blessings that God gave us for our own Babel building purposes. So instead of taking dominion for God's glory, we used our resources for our idolatrous pursuits, which means we need an image bearer who can restore us. We need an image bearer who can save us from our plight to bring us back to the divine intent. We need a savior. We need a savior who can carry out this mandate entrusted to humankind. And we have one. Hear these words as we close. Hebrews 2. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's Psalm 8. We read that earlier tonight. Are the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, though, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Why is that? We sinned. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see that passage tells us we have a, a, a Savior who is the perfect image of God who came to rescue us and restore us back to this mandate entrusted to us in Genesis 1 so that we will live for his glory rather than our own. And, and that's why you're here tonight. Most of you are here tonight because you've been rescued. And, and one of the uh, knee-jerk uh, knee responses to being rescued is to gather uh, with your brothers and sisters who else have been rescued so that we can come and worship this king who has rescued us together. There's nothing like corporate worship. Uh, individual worship is beautiful. Family worship is beautiful. But there's an ascending, all right? There's ascending uh, aspect to glory. There is something glorious about corporate worship. And that's why you're here. But I also recognize there's probably some here tonight that have not been rescued. The Son of Man came to rescue sinners like you. And so as Adam comes forward, uh, we're going to have uh, pastors here at the the head of the aisles, I want to give you an opportunity to come to this one who has come to us to rescue us from our idolatry, to rescue us from our sin. God created all things good, and all that we see bad in the world is because of our sin. But this one came, and he dealt with our sin. He gave it a death blow by his cross and his resurrection. And if you will trust in him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. You'll be delivered out of the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. So let's stand and sing and won't you come. Thanks for worshiping with us today. 
If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.